Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Hello, everybody. Welcome to A Reason for Hope this wonderful Friday, May 27, 2022. I'm your host for today's show, Bo Willette, here with Adrian Van Vactor filling in, two of us filling in for the infamous Sean Richards. Yeah, it takes two of us to do Sean's job. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but we're super glad to be able to be uh, hosting the show on Sean's behalf for you guys today. And we are also joined by uh, our wonderful senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, Scott Richards. Hey, Scott, how's it going? Everything's going great. Can't wait to uh, dive into the questions. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Let me just give everybody the rundown of where you can get a hold of us today. So if you have an email question, you can email your question to questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope at gmail.com. And I'll remind you, um, as the show continues. So maybe in about 15 minutes, I'll remind you where you can drop your email to us. But for right now, questionsforhope at gmail.com. And we're going to be monitoring three platforms. One of them is our YouTube plat- t- platform at A Reason for Hope. So that's A Reason for Hope on YouTube. And then there's Calvary Christian Fellowship on Facebook. And we also will monitor our website where you can watch live as well at Calvary Christian Fellowship. Dot com. All those platforms, we receive your questions. Always exciting to get on there and uh, see what what kind of platform wins the day. That's kind of the thing, Scott. I'm always checking out to see, hey, what what platform is actually gonna gonna beat the other? You know, which one's gonna win? It is a competition every day. I, I'd say <laughs> uh, as of late, um, Facebook and YouTube seem to be neck and neck. So we need those of you who log on to Calvary Christian Fellowship. Dot com to step up your game a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Great. So the first question we're going to get into today is one, uh, it's a big question, uh, and it has to do with Matthew chapter 7. Uh, and it's the question of not judging. Like, uh, you know, what does it mean to judge not lest you be judged? Yeah. Uh, does that mean we should never judge anything? Well, the, the question, Bo uh, and Adrian, came up uh, earlier today. Uh, if you've been under a rock or in a root cellar or trapped in a cave someplace and uh, you don't know uh, what has gone on uh, in uh, Texas, the, uh, the horrible shooting that uh, took place, 19 school children, two teachers dying uh, as a result of uh, one individual. And we don't name the individuals uh, because we don't want to provide any kind of of, uh, of uh, uh, payoff or any kind of encouragement for anybody doing something of uh, these things in the future. But interestingly, the mother of uh, the Rob Elementary School shooter uh, spoke for the first time today. Uh, and uh, her quote was, please forgive me. Great. Uh, you know, we're certainly nobody is condemning her. She said, forgive my son. I know he had his reasons. Now, that obviously raised uh, a few eyebrows there. And 
you know, there are those that say that this is a reflection of the fact that we live in uh, the highfalutin term for it is a postmodern world where uh, the idea of any kind of standards, universal standards of right and wrong that apply to anyone, uh, any uh, situation where uh, you could use, say, uh, the term evil to describe someone's behavior. Uh, very interesting how uh, the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, uh, was uh, chastised by a reporter uh, during the press conference that happened uh, the, almost immediately after the events took place uh, for saying that uh, the what had happened was evil. And uh, the reporter uh, made a comment about, now I'm having a hard time understanding what you're saying here. I don't know how to wrap my mind around uh, this characteristic of what has happened here is evil. Couldn't it, that, that just doesn't seem... Uh, to be very nuanced, I think you're painting with a very broad brush. You know, there are a couple things about that. I worked in radio and television news, and way back in those days uh, where, you know, TVs were made out of stone like the Flintstones used to watch, and, uh, you know, you ride uh, your dinosaur home at the end of the day. Uh, one of the things they taught us in uh, journalism school and uh, on the job was that whatever you did in any kind of an interview or press conference, you were not to be the story. Uh, you were never to use the term I in a question uh, because it wasn't about you. It was about the person that you were interviewing. And so things have so shifted that uh, during this press conference, the first thing I kind of rolled my eyes at was uh, the, this guy kind of going on uh, about uh, Greg Abbott using the term evil. It uh, reminded me of that famous line from the movie A Few Good Men uh, where one of the lawyers said, is there a question anywhere in our future, uh, rather than just a declarative statement? Uh, the other thing that, that really hit me in all of that was the idea that someone's behavior could be evil. And I thought Greg Abbott answered the question well. He said, well, if you can show me something that is uh, more evil than someone taking the life of 19, uh, 19 school children and two teachers, uh, helpless victims, uh, of his own rage, uh, I'll be happy to listen to you. But the idea that you can judge something as good or evil in our culture today is uh, really uh, a, a hard sell for a lot of people. Uh, and I think it's because uh, we've ridden down this road that uh, started out back when I was in school where they told us that, you know, um, you, you need to clarify your values a bit uh, there is really no right. There really is no wrong. But thinking makes it so, you know, different cultures have different ideas about right or wrong. And who are you to put your cultural uh, biases on someone, uh, another culture? And then it, it sort of narrowed down into things like who are you to put your uh, your biases on to other people? Uh, and then it would narrow down further as saying that any kind of moral judgment, any kind of pronouncement of right or wrong, uh, eventually would bring you to the point of saying, no, there isn't any such thing as right or wrong. Everything's fluid. Everything's situational. You've heard the term before, situational ethics. That's really what we were taught. And, and now it's uh, so gone to seed. It was really interesting. I saw a uh, post uh, earlier today where they are showing uh, these uh, posters they're putting up in uh, the subways and the bus stops in New York City uh, with a very uh, hip and with it looking young woman 
with this quote, uh, don't be ashamed if you are using, be empowered that you are using safely. And this is an appeal to people who are using heroin uh, to practice safe drug use. Uh, and uh, you shouldn't feel bad that you're using. You shouldn't feel ashamed of the fact that uh, you're a heroin junkie. Uh, I mean, using even that term, I'm sure, by their lights would uh, be very, very offensive. But uh, when this idea of judgment comes up, uh, inevitably, uh, it's always interesting to me how the one scripture that uh, non-believers seem to know uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt, sometimes they'll say, well, to thine own self be true, that's in the Bible. No, that's not in the Bible, that's in Shakespeare, that's in Hamlet. And the guy who said it was the buffoon of the whole play, but I digress. Uh, but the one that they seem to know more than any other is found in Matthew chapter 7. Again, at verse 1, that says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured to you. And why do you look at it? Go, Jesus goes on, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? but do not consider the plank that is in your own eye, or how you can say to your brother, let me remove that speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So there are those who will say that here we see Jesus categorically saying that judging any behavior is absolutely off the table. Uh, if you judge other people's behavior, then you're the morally defective one in this set of circumstances. Now, Bo, is there a problem with that line of thinking as far as uh, using that scripture to uh, just not even judging this uh, person who massacred all those kids at Robb Elementary, just saying, well, he had his reasons. Uh, as if that excuse it. Is that what Jesus is getting at here? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, you know. You know. You think about it this way too. Jesus is making himself a or making a, a point himself. He's making a judgment in what he's saying. So to to come to the understanding of this passage and say, hey, this means that we're not to make any judgments at all. It would literally Jesus would be contradicting himself. He'd be a hypocrite. Yeah, he'd he be a hypocrite a himself. So obviously we can't just look at that and go, oh, it means you know we're not to judge anything at all. That's not what Jesus was getting at, obviously, because there's other passages that tell us to make judgments. But there's a certain way we're supposed to make judgments, and this is really what Jesus was getting at: is he was fighting against a culture that was. Um, doing judgment wrong self-righteously <clears throat> and focusing too much on the outward appearance without actually examining their own logs in their eyes so to speak yeah, uh, yeah there's a fascinating scripture in uh, john chapter 7 in uh, i believe it's uh, verse 24 uh, where jesus uh said uh you know do not judge unrighteously but judge with righteous judgment so evidently there's some way to judge righteously in these in, in this world okay how do you pull that off without being kind of a plank-eyed hypocrite what do you guys think well i like 
the thought of, you know, let a person examine themselves first. I mean, there's that concept of, uh, you know, not being hypocritical and then judging properly, but... Okay, so, uh, you know, again, this is not just the secular world saying this, but people who identify themselves as progressive Christians will say the same thing. Uh, you know, the idea that you would say make a moral judgment uh, about, say, someone's life choices. Yeah, like I think of 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 5. Okay. You know, that's a section of Scripture that uh, Paul says, uh, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has a father's wife. He says, and you are proud. So he seems to be talking in 1 Corinthians uh, to a very tolerant society, a society that has been affected by uh, that certain uh, worldview, philosophical worldview of saying, hey, you know, man, we, we probably shouldn't make any judgments, you know, we, we, you know, and maybe that's how they were looking at it. But well, it's Paul, surprising that they even, you know, celebrated yeah, the immorality. That's right. It says, even though I am not physically present, he said, uh, you know, he, he says, I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. So, mm -hmm. Paul, well, wait a minute, Paul, you're judging people here. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he goes on to say later on, at, towards the end of the chapter, is that First Corinthians? He, he talks about not even fellowshipping or even eating a meal with someone who's living an immoral lifestyle if they proclaim themselves to be a believer, and that you should not associate with such a person, and that they should be, you know, brought into church discipline. Yeah. So it brings a good, a, a good. You bring out a good question, Scott, and that is, you know, what is Paul when he's making these judgments? What is what is uh, what? How is he making them? What is the righteous judgment uh, that Paul is making when he's writing these corrective epistles? Because he's making judgments throughout them all. Obvious, you know. Well, you know, I think uh, I think there's some really interesting insight into this in the idea that we are to judge, but we are to judge wisely, uh, you know, in, in the scripture. What does it mean to judge wisely uh, in the word of God? You know, the Lord has really been calling me lately to spend uh, quite a bit of time in James chapter three. Um, there's a fascinating section of scripture here as far as how to apply wisdom in judgment. Uh, it says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Uh, in, in other words, we need to be people who are wise and understanding as we face the issues of life. And what James starts out by saying is, if you want to be wise and understanding, don't tell me you're wise and understanding. Show me that you're wise and understanding. It seems to be a theme that James likes to come back to quite a bit. Uh, by your conduct, uh, that your works are done in meekness and wisdom. The idea of meekness doesn't mean that you're some kind of wimp or a wet noodle. It, it means that there's power under control. In other words, we don't just blast away uh, when we get the opportunity to do that. And so I think one of the first things that we need to be careful of uh, as far as judging unrighteously is to just go off emotionally 
when something outrageous happens. And, and I think we saw a lot of this in the Robb Elementary School uh, situation. There were people, uh, celebrities, and uh, the, you know, the, the media uh, megaphone of, uh, of not just uh, you know, the over-the-air media, but uh, the internet. These people would come on and they'd just be screaming and yelling and saying, we've had enough, you know, you gotta do something. Well, you know, you can run around like your hair's on fire and yell, do something. Uh, but I'm not sure that's the most helpful way of addressing a particular issue. And so, you know, we want to be wise. We want to be meek. We want to have power under control. But we want to be we want to be wise in the sense that the foundation stone for how we judge things comes back to this. Uh, Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, if I'm going to judge something that happens here in the horizontal, I can't check out of the heavenly, if you will. I've got to ask myself, all right, what does God think about this particular set of circumstances? And it would only stand to reason that if he does have his judgment on this particular set of circumstances, if I want to judge righteously, I need to align myself with what God himself is saying. And when Jesus was talking in John chapter seven about uh, judge with righteous judgment, uh, the idea behind that was uh, that, uh, and, and the context of the whole discussion in, in John chapter 7, even going back to John chapter 5, was that Jesus' life was on the line uh, for the, the fact that he didn't play by the steel-reinforced spiritual sensibilities of the Pharisees of his day. He didn't observe the Sabbath the way they said you should uh, observe the Sabbath. Uh, he healed people on the Sabbath, and that absolutely outraged them. They 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 wanted to pick up stones to stone him, uh, because he uh, you know healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. They made up their mind they wanted to kill him because of that. Now that's an idea of unrighteous judgment. Why? Uh, well, they thought they were right as rain. They thought they were hyper righteous, but they were not following anything that the Bible said about keeping the Sabbath. They were following their own interpretations of what it meant to keep the Sabbath. And, and that's a huge, huge difference there. And so the first step, I think, for us to make heads or tails out of things from a biblical point of view is to say, okay, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I wanna be wise, I wanna be understanding. Are there some scriptures that directly pertain to this certain set of circumstances. In the case of the Robb Elementary School thing, if we were told him, well, you know, the guy had his reasons, so I can't make a moral pronouncement on that, uh, I'd say, well, God has a different take on that. I seem to recall uh, that uh, part of the Ten Commandments, for instance, uh, include the uh, expression, thou shalt not murder, for instance. God is very down on people taking others' lives. Uh, how does God feel about abusing children in a violent way. Well, Jesus said that one who caused even these one of these little ones to stumble, it'd be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be tossed into the sea. So God has some very passionate ideas about what it means to abuse or act violently towards children. So I think I can say based on these two terms, if I'm gonna judge with righteous judgment, I can't say, well, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm all loving, you know, so I, you know, who am I to judge this guy? I'm sure he had his reasons. 
Uh, don't get me wrong. I, I have no idea what was going on inside that guy's head, what uh, twists and turns of life had led him to the place where he became this murderous, uh, you know, awful uh, individual. But the fact of the matter is, uh, just like James says, if you want to be wise and understanding, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in meekness and wisdom. Well, you flip that around and we can also show by our conduct uh, that we are not walking in wisdom. We're not walking in harmony with God's truth. And so when we put these things together, I think I can say without fear of God's contradiction, that what happened at Robb Elementary School was a horrific, sinful, may I use Greg Abbott's word, evil event that took yeah, place. Yeah, do you think, do you think Scott, that you know, it's just come to fruition, uh, you know, that philosophy that you were talking about that was around when you were younger, uh, where the dominant base of the culture doesn't have a understanding of objective truth. Um, and so so they they really everything becomes very arbitrary. Um, and people don't don't want to know about uh, people don't want to use objective truth wording like right or wrong. Do you find that uh, you know that's basically just what's permeated the culture so much where, um, this is what's happened. You know, yeah, this is I, I think that's true. And we have to be very careful as well that when we look at our culture and we see it uh, going to hell in a handbasket, like it is, uh, that we become so reactive to all of this. Yeah. And we say, you know, God has uh, shown me the truth. I'm on God's side. These other people over here, you know, are these, uh, you know, horrible, depraved uh you know, awful individuals and I can uh, look down on them and God will be, you know, his rod and staff will comfort me. Well, you know, when uh, we live in an age where, uh, you know, Matthew chapter seven, verse one, do not judge or you too will be judged, has displaced uh, John three sixteen is the only verse in the Bible that the man on the streets likely to know. Uh, it's very important to add that uh, judge not lest you be judged forbids judgmentalism, but it doesn't forbid. The scripture doesn't forbid moral discernment. On the other side of the coin, John chapter 7 and verse 24, uh, judge with righteous judgment, absolutely demands moral and theological discernment, especially in the context of saying, all right, here I see something that's awful, it's reprehensible, it's reprehensible, I can't make that judgment. But as I make that judgment, I need to guard myself against self-righteousness. Yeah. I realize that Jesus said that the one who is angry with his own brother in his own home has committed murder in his heart. Yeah. So uh, when it comes to being right before God, I can't puff up my chest and say, well, I've never killed anybody and I don't own an AR-14 and uh, I've never, you know, done. No, uh, you know, if God is going to judge us based upon his absolute righteous standard, and I'm going to say because I'm better or I haven't committed some horrible heinous act that I'm okay. You know, back in the day, 
someone would say, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm no Hitler. You know, I, I think there were a lot of people that were really grateful Adolf Hitler came around because at the very least, there was somebody around who's going to be worse than them, right? Uh, yes. You know, Charlie Manson kind of op, op, operated mm -hmm. in that realm uh, for, for a while. But, you know, if, if I'm to say that I'm okay with God because I haven't done X and such, uh, you know, then we're right back where we started from because I'm sure uh, Adolf Hitler's uh, close friends uh, said, well, you know, uh, he had his reasons why he hated Jews. You know, you, got, you can't be too quick to judge there. What? What are you talking about? Oh, yeah, Charlie Manson, you know, he, you know, butchered all those people trying to create a race war. And he believed that, uh, you know, the uh, the blacks were so inferior to him that they'd beg him to be their king someday. But I'm sure he had his reasons for, for thinking that. You know, no, no, that, you know, again, that it reminds me of something Francis Schaeffer uh, always uh, used to say, the, the Christian philosopher, a uh, really fascinating guy, wrote a great book uh, called uh, How Shall We Then Live and, and others, The Great Evangelical Disasters, another great book uh, of his. And the, the more he wrote these back in the, the 70s, and I think uh, the more I read them, the more I think they're prophetic. But uh, one thing that, uh, that Francis Schaeffer uh, always talked about was that atheism uh, is something uh, that tends to attack Christianity and the idea that it's too good to be true. But atheism and this idea of moral relativism that we've sunk ourselves into in our culture is too bad to be true. Yeah, it really it really forfeits mercy and grace. Yeah. Moral relativism. It really forfeits it. And that's what I see in the culture is there is a forfeiting of this idea of mercy and this idea of grace. So like the Bible like Jesus's brother says because uh, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In our culture we can't have mercy because there is no moral standard. And without a moral standard, you can't have mercy on anybody because no one's breaking No one anything. needs mercy. No one needs mercy. <laughs> That's right. So, so it's like what people don't understand is they're forfeiting the beauty of mercy. They're forfeiting the beauty of grace when they go to a moral relativistic philosophy. And, and I, I did too when I was growing up. The reason why I went to moral relativism and why it drew me so much is because I didn't want to admit failure. And this is where Jesus is so beautiful because Jesus is so filled with mercy and so filled with grace, yet not neglecting the righteousness of the law. And because he didn't neglect the righteousness of the law, he could show mercy and he could show grace on people who break the law. Right. And, and so, like, for me, I, I didn't, I didn't want to admit that failure so much. I was so scared of admitting any kind of failure that what I did is just try to erase the, the objective law and, and just try to get that away from me as much as possible to say, hey, there is no right and wrong. It's just we're on different layers of life and that's kind of where we're at and, you know, that kind of thing. And you just got to kind of follow your path and your path's a little different from mine. And, uh, but it didn't 
do anything for my soul. You know, it, it left me so bankrupt um, because I couldn't experience any mercy or grace. And, and that's what people, I think, lack so much in the world right now is mercy and grace. And they don't understand why, but it's because they've thrown out the, the moral, objective. moral objective. Yeah. Yeah. And even when they do, even when culture does hold on to some sort of moral realism, uh, it's certainly not the case when it comes to like personal sexual preferences. But, you know, as soon as you get into identity politics, all of a sudden there's objective moral values. <laughs> well, and if you've sinned, there's no forgiveness, even if it was a tweet from 20 years ago or 10 years ago, because Twitter wasn't there 20 years ago. But even if it was something you said 10 years ago, you have to keep apologizing, keep asking forgiveness, and there won't get any forgiveness. You'll still get fired and canceled or whatever it is. But... Uh, when when culture pretends like they have objective moral values, obviously baselessly, because without the existence of God, without a point of reference for how we differentiate between evil and good, uh, they they toss out mercy along with that, and they don't don't sort of demonstrate forgiveness and grace towards anyone. It's kind of frightening. Yeah, the beauty of the Bible is just seen in this idea of God is long-suffering and merciful and gracious. And uh-huh. as Christians, we really need to uh, we need to have that wonderful balance you talk about, Scott. To uphold righteousness, to have a righteous judgment, is to uphold what God upholds as being right. And But we also want to exercise mercy and grace, mm-hmm. as Jesus did. So... You know, so, um, I just want to remind people that you're listening to A Reason for Hope, and you can email your questions at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope at gmail.com. And we do have a little bit of battle online right now with some questions. We, uh, people are trying to win this today's <laughs> contest. So we got a bunch from every platform. <laughs> so, so we got to let's start in, in on the questions. Yeah. All right, let's 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 dive into that. Okay, so this is going to be on our Facebook uh, uh, first, and this is from Jay, and it says, please explain what it means to walk in the Spirit. Yeah, that's a great question, Jay. And, uh, you know, we hear uh, that that point of view or that, that phrase used, and oftentimes it becomes such a cliche uh, we really don't understand what is being talked about there. Uh, the, the actual phrase, uh, walk in the Spirit, is found in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, and uh, verse uh, 16, where the Apostle Paul said, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Uh, you know, he goes on and he describes the works of the flesh, what happens when our fallen nature is running the show in our lives, and then the famous fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. It says against these things there is no law. It says, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live in the Spirit, Let us also walk in the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The idea of a walk then, Jay, is really interesting in the original language. The word peripateo, it literally means to walk around something. Uh, It doesn't just mean, you know, to take a stroll. It means, you know, the the way that you have a gait in life. Uh, Every once in a while, my uh, brother, uh, Rick from California, will come out and visit. And it's really funny when he comes to church 
Uh, he's 13 months older than I am. And when people see us together, they kind of get a little freaked out because they go, wow, you guys, like you have the same posture, uh, you use the same gestures, you, you sound alike when you talk, and Bo's kind of laughing is what I'm talking about. But uh, people will see us like even walking from a distance and, and they'll recognize it's the Richards brothers because we walk alike. You know, we have the same kind of gait, the same kind of pace, the same kind of style, if you will, even in walking. And, and that's really what this idea of walking in the spirit is all about. It is this idea of what characterizes you as you go through life. That, that, that's the nuance of the term there. Now, what does it mean to walk in the spirit? It, it means not just to say, oh man, it's time to go to church, I better get spiritual. No, it, it means that, boy, when I wake up in the morning, I realize that I have a choice that uh, the Lord has told me that uh, he's promised me that he will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask for him. The power of the Holy Spirit is available to me. Jesus promised in Acts chapter one and verse eight, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall receive my witnesses. To walk in the spirit is to acknowledge that in me, in my fallen nature, no good thing dwells. But God, not only through his Holy Spirit, dwells in my heart, but he is also, through the power of his Spirit, going to come upon me, as Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, and give me the power to live a Christ-reflecting life. The very love of Jesus Christ can flow through my life. And that's why we see there the fruit of the Spirit being described as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on. Because you really, in a sense, it's a, if you want to condense it down, it's the character of Christ that is being described there. And what God wants to do in our lives is to work out that character of Christ, that when people interact with us, they encounter Jesus in our character. Can we fake it till we make it? Can we try to imitate or simulate the character of Christ? No, it takes that miraculous spirit-led not only indwelling, it causes us to be born again, that puts us in the game in the first place, but also the coming upon power that we have to receive each and every day in order to walk in the spirit, wherever we go, whatever, wherever our steps might lead us. And, and sooner or later, as we learn to walk as Jesus walked, and uh, again, we discovered that we were to, exhorted to do that, whoever claims to know Jesus must walk as he walked, we're told in the scripture, that pretty soon we start to take on his gait, his posture, his way of doing things. We don't even realize we're doing it, but you know we become more like him and less like us. Uh, so you know, really, that's what it means to walk in the spirit. You guys, add anything to that? Uh, I would. I would. Two passages came to my mind. One of them was John uh, chapter six and verse sixty-two that talk or sixty-three that says the Spirit gives life. Um, and uh, it says, uh, uh, well, the spirit gives life and flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and, and they are life. And so when I think of walking in the spirit, I think in walking according to God's word, God's word is spirit. It, it is that uh, it, God's word is the, the spiritual life. 
And so it reminds me of another passage in the book of Romans that you touched on, Scott, and that is the, the spiritual person has their minds on the things of the spirit. Um, so walking in the spirit is walking with a very God conscious mind uh, always in your life. You, the Christian is waking up thinking about God, thinking about the Messiah, right. thinking about the works of Messiah, um, how Messiah could live out uh, his life through us. So us dying to ourselves. You know, all that that you talked about, being filled with the character. So those are two passages I thought I thought of. Anything you can add to that, Adrian? You know, when I think of this walking in the Spirit, I, I always ask myself, okay, I, we can identify what it looks like, but how do we get there? What's the call to action? And it takes me to Ephesians 5.18. It says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And in, in Ephesus, but people would get drunk to know God's will. So he's dealing with a theological misunderstanding that, hey, do not be drunk with wine. That word drunk is the same word that they would use to soak bulls' hides in fat to make them stretchy. So it's like, do not get <laughs> soaked. Do not get bombed with wine to know God's will, but be filled with the Spirit. And when I think of that word uh, filled, it's, uh, gosh, I'm having to re-remember my, you can help me with this, Scott, the, the different uh, verb tenses, but filled is, uh, it's the... It's a, it's a perfect tense. Perfect tense, that's what yeah. it is, yeah. Present and perfect imperative. <laughs> yeah, it means you got to do it. It's an imperative way, yeah, in the mood, and then you, it's it's a something you can, it's not a one-time deal. You can be filled or you cannot be filled. <laughs> yeah, and so, it, 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 we've said that the, the, the uh, rough translation is be ye constantly being filled with the Spirit, not a one-shot deal. Right. Exactly. And and when I think of that, I, I think that that means that every believer either is filled with the Spirit or not. And when we think of filled, I used to think that, you know, when I first became a believer, you'd have the, the preacher or the person teaching, they'd have like a, a cup and some Kool-Aid, and they'd go, this is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And they would, you know, pour some Kool-Aid in the cup and see that the cup is now filled. And so the idea, the thought, the incorrect thought was I have a little bit of the Holy Spirit, and the more I, I yield to God, I'll get more of him. But that's not the concept being communicated there at all. It's the idea of control. So if I'm, you know, filled with fear, I'm, my, my life and my actions are being controlled by fear. If I'm being filled with wine, I'm not just filled in my belly, but more importantly, I'm being controlled by liquor. So first the man takes the drink, then the drink takes the drink, then the drink takes the man. And so that what I try to rest myself in when I'm thinking, am I being carnal right now? How can I uh, continue f focusing on walking in the Spirit? Am I filled, as, as Bo said, am I yielding my heart to my conscience as, it is, as the Holy Spirit's putting things on my mind through God's Word? Am I obeying God's Word? Am I uh, yielding? And so I, uh, when I was thinking through this, I, I think three words— <laughs> And it starts with the word willingness, a willingness to agree with God about any sin in your life that he has shown you through his word, a willingness to allow the Holy Spirit to work unhindered in your life as he convicts your conscience. You just are willing to allow him to work unhindered. And then, of course, a willingness to believe, as you said, Scott, that, that God will empower you to live the way he uh, desires or is calling you to as he is taking you through as we work out our salvation so to speak so that's one of the things that i always think about when i think about you know walking in the spirit yeah 
Yeah, okay. and, and boy, you know, Jay, that is probably uh, one of the most life-changing uh, truths that any believer will grasp. And a lot, one that a lot of believers don't grasp, by the way. Uh, they wonder why, you know, they, they will go to a retreat or some kind of uh, uh, a rally or a meeting and they get all fired up and all charged up. And then the next day, their life not only goes back to the way it was, maybe even regresses. Uh, you know, it, it's the failure to understand that the relationship we have with God, the Holy Spirit, has to be a daily, ongoing renewal. Uh, don't get me wrong. Once you receive Jesus as your Savior, he indwells you. You don't get more of the Holy Spirit uh, by asking for the coming upon power of him. But you are, in essence, moment by moment, day by day, saying, Lord, uh, uh, apart from you, I can do nothing. You got to live your life out through me, and I'm willing for you to do this today. That's not a one-time decision. Uh, like I say, you know, I, I always exhort our people at Calvary Christian Fellowship, and before your feet hit the carpet in the morning, mm. pray and ask the Lord to come upon you with the power of His Holy Spirit. Uh, I said I do that, but then I'll realize that uh, by 10 o'clock in the morning, I need to pray that prayer again. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, you know my, my life just gets too complicated mm. and, and over the top uh, for me to be able to manage it, which is uh, totally a God thing. Mm. Uh, you know, even the stuff that we look at that kind of drags us back to the flesh or, you know, brings out the worst in us. God can use that as a tap on the shoulder saying, you know, you need me right now. <laughs> you know, you, you kind of took uh, things in your own hands and it's not working out real great for you. Just turn back to me, ask for forgiveness ask for that coming upon power of the Holy Spirit and see the difference in making your life. It's one of the most powerful and mm. practical things uh, you'll ever do. And I really think, you know, we throw around that cliche a lot that Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. The empowering work, the miraculous empowering work of the Holy Spirit, I believe is the single most powerful definition of that concept, Hmm. That, that it's a relationship with God. Otherwise, you know, if I've just got my checkoff list of godly things I got to do in a day, oh, I, I read my Bible for 15 minutes. Oh, I prayed for 20 minutes. Oh, you know, I, I listened to Christian radio instead of the heavy hits. Oh, you know, I, you know that's just religion. Yeah, hmm. any religious person can do that. Yeah. But it only takes us, the only person who can live out the character of Jesus, especially when our flesh is telling us to do the opposite thing, hmm. is someone who is in filled with the miraculous power, overflowing power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, I, I love Jesus' promise uh, in uh, John uh, chapter 7, uh, where he said, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Mm. If anyone believes in me, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And, and it says this, he said, concerning the Spirit. In other words, this overflowing life, this living water, this not only being refreshed, but being refreshing, in the relationships that we have. That's that's what we're talking about here. Jay, I would love to get your thoughts on how you've heard uh, walking in the Spirit, uh, like the context to which you heard that. Um, and so if you get a chance to, to get back on the Facebook platform and just let us know like what that meant to you or what you thought the uh, walking in the Spirit meant because scott i bet you in your ministry life of what 30 plus years now um maybe even getting close to 40 but since um, 1981 1981 okay like going on like 40 yeah <laughs> wow but you know walking in the spirit 
probably has had some interesting um, kind of ideas as well. You've probably seen that before in uh, evangelical Christianity. Yeah, you know, I mean, there are those that will say that that uh, walking in the Spirit or the Spirit-filled life uh, is manifesting certain gifts of the Holy Spirit, and it certainly can involve that. But uh, I've been in church situations where, for instance, if you didn't speak in tongues, you weren't Spirit-filled. Well, nowhere does it say that, uh, you know, again, uh, you know, walk in the Spirit and speak in tongues. Uh, you know, the Adrian, the passage that you pointed out in Ephesians chapter 5 uh, where it does uh, describe be constantly being filled with the Spirit. It talks about some of the characteristics of someone who is genuinely filled with the Spirit. It, it says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. I, I don't see the gift of speaking in tongues mentioned there. Mm. Um, the gift of speaking in tongues is a great gift. If you got it, not all of us have it, but some people have so focused in on that. You know, there was a, a movement called the Vineyard Movement that got into what they called power evangelism, where being filled with the Holy Spirit was uh, going up to people. And, you know, and I, I hung out with some of these guys uh, back in the day and they get this kind of eerie look in their eyes and the vibrato in their voice. And they go up to the guy at Carl's Jr. and say, hey, I have a word from God for you. And the guy's going, uh, do you want that uh, with or without ketchup? You know, and, I mean, yeah, and, 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 you know, it was kind of this sort of forcing something to happen and calling that the spirit filled life. Well, the, the greatest miracle, I believe, the greatest sign of the filling of the Holy Spirit is the presence of love. Uh, you know, again, the, the kind of first Corinthians 13 love that just doesn't dwell in us natively or naturally, you know, and so I've seen that I've seen some, uh, others that, you know, react to people getting too hopped up on, uh, signs, wonders, and miracles, uh, where they go, no, 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 the, the gifts of the Holy spirit, power of the Holy spirit. No, once you uh, receive Christ, you got all the Holy spirit you're ever going to have. And there's no second experience with the Holy spirit. Uh, you know, if you teach that, you're teaching heresy. I've heard people say that. Uh, in fact, there were people in the seminary I went to that uh, would take that point of view. And I said, well, then what about Ephesians chapter five, about being constantly filled with the Spirit? They say, do you believe there's another experience of the Holy Spirit after uh, salvation? Well, yeah, for a couple of reasons. In John 14, Jesus said the Spirit was with his disciples, but he would be in them in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus said he would come upon us, upon them. Now, these disciples, Jesus had already breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. You know, and so when he said, tarry in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high, clearly there was another experience with the Holy Spirit that was available to believers. You know, but it's not a one-shot deal. Some people say, you think there's another, uh, a second experience of the Holy Spirit after salvation? I go, yeah, and a third, and a fourth, and a fifth, and a, man, as many as I need in a day, I need that power of the Holy Spirit. So, yeah, it's kind of been a, a wild adventure for me, Bo. Yeah, Jay did get back with us and said he thought it was being kind to others, showing love to others. Yeah, that's, boy, if God gives you the power to do that, good on you, Jay. Stay, mm. stay focused on that. Anything else he wants to do, he'll do it. Mm. Yeah, like good. Paul said, uh, I die daily. 
I beat my body and make it my slave. And that's in the context at the same time where he said, you know, the very thing I want to do, I don't do. And what I hate, I find myself doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the other thing that I, I would uh, I, w- I would say there, Jay, and I think you're really on to something there is, uh, you know, if you are loving and kind to other people, you know, that's what God's really looking for. Uh, when we start getting distracted by the other stuff, boy, 1 Corinthians 13 kind of kicks in, doesn't it? Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, great if you can do it, uh, but have not love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. If I have all knowledge and understand all mysteries, have the gift of prophecy, uh, and, and yet have not, not love, uh, I'm nothing. If I give up everything I have to feed the poor and present my body to be burned, but have not love, I'm nothing. So, you know, if we don't start with that as the sign of all signs, the love of Jesus Christ, I think we've missed what the real coming upon power of the Holy Spirit is. Yeah, absolutely. And kindness is not a—being kind to people is not a neglecting of objective standards of right and wrong. Like, we're not kind if—you know, a doctor isn't kind if they don't tell you, you know, what the true diagnosis is in your, in your body. That's not a very kind doctor. So, right? Yeah. (laughs) You you know, so it's like when we say being kind, yeah, it's being kind. And that comes from uh, a compassion that we have for humans. Mm. And we, we, as Christians, we of all people know the human condition. You know, out of all people, our eyes are opened to our flaws because we believe in total depravity. Uh, so we of all people know that, hey, the condition of human beings are fallen, blind, deaf, you know, and we need mercy and grace. And Absolutely. So, and so that's what's moving us to have this mm-hmm. kind of kindness. It's not a throwing out of the law. It's knowing that the law is righteous and that we do need help. Mm. And so it brings us into a compassion with people. Um, Sean asked us a question about evangelism. And uh, Sean, who we are filling in for, uh, and I hope uh, he's ready to go on Monday. Pray for Sean that he he feels better. He's a little under the weather. Yeah. But he he asks, how do you keep grace and truth in balance when dealing with difficult people? And this is on our YouTube YouTube platform. Realize that you're probably just as difficult. <laughs> That's what I try to tell yeah, myself. And, and his context is evangelism. So Sean, as we know, Sean does a lot of evangelism, and he's always on the front lines of online evangelism especially, but also in person. He goes every week uh, yeah. to a public square, basically. Well, not tonight, because he's and, sick. But. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, it goes back to what you were just saying about kindness. You know, First Peter 3.15 says, you be ready to give everyone an answer who asks you, uh, about the hope that you have, but with gentleness and respect. I know his question is more of, we, he knows that we ought to do that, but how do you go about doing that when you're debating with a very difficult person? Because I've done uh, my fair share of street evangelism and dialoguing with college students on campuses all over the globe, and when people are rude and offensive and trying to get you worked up on purpose, uh, it takes uh, a, a quite a bit of self-discipline to be gentle, be respectful, to provide an answer. Uh, but uh, yeah, how do you do that, Scott? Yeah, well, I think it comes back to, it's funny how we started in Matthew chapter seven, we come back to it full circle here. Uh, another statement that Jesus made, uh, which is a fascinating one, he says, do not give what is holy to the dogs, 
Do not cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Uh, what Jesus is talking about here is exercising discernment, and I guess a pretty hip and happening word we hear in our day and age, boundaries, when we talk with people who uh, are becoming aggressive. Um, you know, when you're online, uh, very easy to uh, get to dragged in to a, a contentious conversation. And there's nothing wrong with contending earnestly for the faith. But I think the, the important thing is to make sure that we don't fall into doing something that Jesus told us not to do, uh, and that is to cast our pearls before swine, to give holy things to depraved individuals. Uh, they're not going to listen. They're just going to trample under feet the things that you give to them. So how can we discern the difference between someone who is contentious and someone that we should contend earnestly the faith about? Well, you know, to me, I think there's some diagnostic questions. You know, one thing I, that I, I love about your online ministry, Sean, is that you've shared with me before is you give people three strikes. Uh, you know, if they tend to be contentious, uh, you know, you'll answer them and just say, okay, I want to clarify what you're saying and this is my answer. And if they belabor the point or they just talk past you, they'll say, okay, I've given you one opportunity here. Let's bring the conversation back. You know, if there's, you know, and, and if they keep going, you say, well, that's the third strike. Uh, you know, if, if a person just grabs hold of a bone, they're not going to let it go. And they're just waiting for you to get done so that they can go back to uh, assaulting uh, the truth, well, then there's no reason to continue on there. And you just respectfully just say, you know, when you feel again, like listening to uh, the other side here, uh, you know, get in touch with me. But right now, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're not listening. We're talking past each other and it's wasting your time and my time. And, and that is an, uh, a way of not casting pearls before swine. The other thing is if someone starts to use abusive language, if they start to say, you're a no good uh, bleeping so-and-so like this, you know, uh, one of the things I think I've seen in your ministry, Sean, that I like is coming back to this idea of saying an insult is not an argument. You know, you might not like me personally, but you're not dealing with ideas here. You're dealing with character here, and that's not going to be good for you or for me. Uh, so, you know, you, you call them on that and say, you know, if you continue to use this kind of abusive language, uh, you know, we're not going to be able to talk anymore. One of the, 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 the great diagnostic questions that has helped me down through time, two of them, is this. If someone's starting to get all red-faced and angry and bent out of shape, I'll ask him the question, why are you so angry? What is it about what we're talking about here or the person of Jesus or the Bible that makes you so angry? Uh, you know, and uh, if you can get them to put their cards on the table as to why they're so upset, you know, maybe it's tribalism. Maybe they're angry because their in-group tells people that you should be angry at Christians and they're responsible for all the evils in the world. Maybe that's it. Maybe... Uh, someone who was a Christian really did him wrong. And, and uh, you have to get down to what that woundedness is and show them that Jesus isn't that way. Otherwise, you're, you're going to be wasting your time. The other question that I find that I will ask people in that set of circumstances that's been helpful 
is this. If I were to answer that question to your satisfaction, would you consider becoming a Christian? And if they go, well, no. Well, then I point out to them very graciously, but firmly. Well, then, you know, it's not a, a question of the intellect here, is it? It's a question of the will. It's not that you uh, can't believe in Jesus. It's that you won't believe in Jesus. Do you really feel that's an intellectual position to take? So I think having some of those things at the ready, we interact like that is always good. Anything you guys would add to that? Well, I, I like what, the way you phrase that. And I think there's a huge difference between dealing with people online than face-to-face. -face. Obviously, you can discern quite a bit more. And uh, I, I usually do what you do, Scott, is I ask a lot of questions. I try to get people to open up in their assumptions or what they are really dealing with. And I've, I have found that you can discern more by talking with people rather than talking at them. And when you can demonstrate genuine care for them, they tend to be a little more responsive. I've seen people act very aggressive and very, um, you know, insulting. And then all of a sudden their countenance changes when you just demonstrate that here, I'm not here to win an argument in front of all these people. I'm genuinely concerned for what you yeah. think. Yeah. So, so that's a great answer, Adrian. Hey, we want to thank you so much for joining us on A Reason for Hope today. Be sure to check us out Monday at 5 o'clock p.m., same place, same time. So you guys have a great day. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you.